This is the same thing in Christianity. This is not a faith filled with people who never mess up, who never fail, who never struggle. It's a group of people who are recognizing that our lives are out of sync with Jesus and then making corrections. We get out of sync and we correct. We get out of sync and we correct. We find that we've wandered into sin and we say, no, that's not the life I was called to. And we change. This is the life of a Christian is realignment with Jesus. But there will be some who will not respond in this way. I'll give you a point in case. I play guitar. I'm not exceptional at guitar, but I enjoy it. I play it. Um, and, and I can tell, right? Like when I'm playing and I hear other people, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to try this. And it gets close. And, I, you know, you keep tweaking and trying and getting closer. But I, one day my, my nine-year-old son, he comes in and he says, hey, Dad, will you teach me how to play the guitar? And I say, well, sure. I, you know, I'd love to. And so I sit him down with the guitar, and I teach him the easiest chord to play on the guitar, which is the E minor. All you have to do is hold down two chords. Two chords, two fingers, you're done. You got it. And so I strum it on mine, and it sounds great. I, he strums it on his, and it goes, and it's not right. And so I said, no, 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 your, your, your fingers are a little off there. He said, they need to be right here, and I move them to the right place. And he goes, oh, like this, and he puts them in the wrong place again. It goes, and and again, it's totally wrong. And I said, no, 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 no. You, you know, it's close, but it's really more like this. And he says like this, and he does it wrong again. And finally, he's just frustrated. And so he can either say, dad, I can't do it, or dad, it's not good enough. But instead, he goes a different way. And I don't know what this says about my son, but he says, no, dad, I think you're wrong. He says, this is the right chord, and it's like, no, 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 you've got it wrong. He says, no, I've got it. I've mastered the guitar. I play the guitar now. And I looked at him and I was like, you have lost your mind. But there are some of us as Christians who kind of do this, right? That we begin to live out of sync with God and we hear the melody and the rhythm of his life. And we see it in scripture. And we're like, wow, that's amazing. And then we do something, right? Infinitesimally small. And like we're driving along in traffic, someone cuts us off and we want to flip them off, but we don't. Instead, we shake our fist without that finger upraised. And we're like, just like Jesus. And we look at our lives and somebody says, man, you need to conform your life to Jesus. And you're like, I did. Man, it took me a long half hour, but I finally got it figured out. And now I'm there. And like, no, no, that's not right. And so one of the things that we need to do is we need to figure out what this process of transformation looks like. How do we how do we even comprehend what it's supposed to be? And the first thing he says is, I want you to change your focus. I want you to shift your mind, because if your mind can change about this, then everything else can follow it. But if you can't wrap your head around it, if you can't comprehend the difference between right and wrong, if you don't get the difference between what Jesus is doing and what you were doing in your sin, if we begin to make his love small and we take the love that saw a world in sin and rebellion against God and said, I love this enough to redeem it by dying for it. This is the love of Jesus. And instead, we interpret that as my love is letting my kids eat ice cream for dinner. Right? That's love. And your kids are like, yeah, this is awesome. Dad, nobody loves me like you do. And we're like, yeah, just like Jesus. I'm like, well, that's nice. I'm glad you had ice cream with the kids. That's good. But... <laughs> If we're going to align our lives with Jesus, we have to begin to understand this mental picture, this perception of who he is. 
And so it says, hey, don't, don't keep your mind on these earthly things. Instead, begin to set your hearts on things above. Because you have been joined together with Christ, because you have been raised with him, keep your mind where he is. Begin to ask the question, what is it that he wants? How does, how does he see the world? And it begins to change how we engage and how we understand our lives. And just to, just again, another picture. How many of you are married? Go ahead and raise your hand. A lot of you, a lot of you. Not all of you, but a lot of you. That's good. And how many of you remember what it was like to be single? Yeah, most of you. How many of you are single right now? How many of you would like to not be single right now? You're like, hey, you know it would be great if I was in a relationship. I met a guy recently who was a little bit thirsty, and he was like, hey, so if you know anybody at all, and I mean anybody, I mean, do you know anyone in all of the church? There's 5,000 people, presumably, if the statistics are correct, 60% of those are women. Some of them have to be single. Pastor, do you know somebody? And I was like, bro, you know, we'll, we'll get this figured out. I'm going to put the word out. So if you're a single lady between the ages of 20 and 30 years old and you want to let me know later, we'll figure it out. But when I heard that from him, you're kind of like, wow, you know, he's thirsty, right? But I get it. He's single and he doesn't want to be single. And so you kind of look at this and say, yeah, that's okay as a single person. Now, if you're married and you're coming to me and you're like, I'm married, but hey, I'm still looking. And if you know anybody at all that's willing to, you know, you don't look at that and go, oh, that's sweet. You know, you go, you're crazy. That's not okay. That's not all right. That's not God's plan. You got to understand you had a mentality when you're single that has to change when you're married. You had a mentality, one set of rules that existed for you when you were in one situation, but now your situation has changed. And right, like even, even take the kind of relational side out of it. Just think about the way you spent your time. You remember when you were single? I do. And if I wanted to do something, I would just do it. I was like, hey, I should go. And I did. That's, that's just, that's how far my brain had to work. Like, hey, I want to go and do this. My friend would be like, you want to catch a movie? And I would just be like, am I working? Yes or no? If I'm not working, yes, I want to go with you and see a movie. And now, what is my classic response? I bet you know it all already. Someone comes to me, they say, would you like to see a movie with me? And I respond, I got to ask my wife. I mean, all of us do that, right? Like if you're married, like that's just your thing because I can't live like I'm single anymore. I can't live like my life is the only one that matters. I can't live like I just do whatever I want. Now that I'm married, there has to be this consideration of the other person. And I have to ask this question and say, okay, what makes sense for our family and not just what makes sense for me personally? And in the same way, when you begin this relationship with Jesus Christ, there's this closeness that takes place where I no longer act like I'm in the same situation I was before I met him. Instead, I'm saying, Jesus, you're my Lord. You're the king of my life. You're the one that I live for. And so I'm setting my mind on things above and saying, Jesus, how do I come back in alignment with you? This is closely paralleled in the language of Romans chapter 6. Verses 1 through 4, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so this question, should we keep sinning? The answer is no. Why? Because we've died to it. Well, how did we die? Verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized 
into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so we see in baptism this beautiful symbolic picture of the change and transformation that has taken place. In the same way that you understand when does my life shift really from the obligations of a single individual to that of a family man, it happens when you get married. That's when the obligation becomes lifelong. That's when the place changes where you say, hey, you know what? Where do you see yourself in five years? I don't know. I might be with this person. I might not to, yeah, five years from now, I see myself kind of still married, right? Hopefully that's your answer. If it's not, again, we can have that conversation after service. I'd love to walk with you. Um, But this whole thing is he's saying there is something that changed your identity. And here he's saying it's baptism. You died with Christ and you were raised with him. And now you have a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified. So that's you. That's me. Our old self was crucified with him. So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, I want to be very clear on what this means. The whole book of Romans, it's kind of talking about this nature of people who lived in disobedience to God, which is just in case you were wondering, everyone. And it said that really uh, our default setting is we're born into bondage. We're born as slaves. And so we are chained up and bound to sin. In other words, no matter how hard you tried to be perfect, you could not accomplish it because you are bound in sin. And so our ability to avoid sin is impossible. It's the kind of stuff that as we have tried to make things right in our life, we found that we could not do it. We found that no matter how hard we struggled against these things, we were bound up and in chains. And in Christ, what he does is he says, I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to wash you clean of your sin. And I'm going to break the chains of bondage you once had. And instead, I'm going to bind you to me and to righteousness. And so literally what takes place is we we gain access to the power of God that is destroying sin in our life. And so it means that we have this new power that enables us to break the bondage of our old chains. In a sense, for us to be a Christian and still living in the bondage of sin is like being a 13,000 pound elephant and having a rope tied around your ankle and said, sorry, guys, I can't go anywhere. Right? It's ridiculous. Say, no, 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 you have been attached to this. And so really what's happening here is a transformation in the way that we understand Our life, our life is now meant to be lived no longer in the way that it was before we have traded it in Christ. When you get saved, you're saying everything I was for everything you have for me. That's the exchange. In other words, God, I'm laying down my whole life that you may be glorified. Secondly, your new life comes when the old life dies. In other words, if you want a new life in Christ, you have to go through death to get it. And if you belong to Jesus, you have the power to put to death what once held you 
in bondage. This is huge. This means that no longer is anything capable of derailing me from Christ. That doesn't mean that there's going to that I'm, I'm going to live perfect from now on. In fact, I would say that most of us as Christians have realized that we kind of messed up shortly thereafter and then all the days that came after that. And as we wrestle, the difference here, just like I was talking about with the guitar, is when we find ourselves out of alignment that we recognize it and we're like, man, here's some sin. I need to confess this before God. And the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, something I quote often, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, I mess up and then I, I strive to make it right. I repent, I confess, I say, Jesus, forgive me. And he is gracious and willing to do so. But the reality is this, is that I can't simply go on in sin and say, hey, he gets it. There are some Christians who would say, hey, he knew I was a sinner when he saved me. He knew that I was messed up in this stuff. He knew what I was wrapped up in. And is it any wonder I'm wrapped up still? It's okay. God will forgive me. No, no, no. The language here in scripture is I know who you are. Set your minds on things above. And then you need to put to death the things of that old life. Hear this in verse five. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So he's calling them out as a church. He says, we know what you used to be. And I mean, if we can just be honest, we all have a past. We all have things that we're not proud of. We all have things that have existed in our past that if you said, hey, what does it look like to be a Christian? We could all point to moments in our lives and say, not like that, right? And so he begins to call him out. And the first thing that he calls out in this sequence is kind of what's driving your desire? What's driving your desire? And so this first part, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And it seems a little bit weird because he's with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. And you kind of think you know where he's going. And he's like, oh, man, this is all about sex. Sex is bad, right? And then he throws in this last one, greed, and you're like, man, what does greed have to do? Is that like pain for sex? Is, is that what's going on? No, no, no. What he's talking about is what is driving the actions of your life? What is driving the desires that are moving you? And these things need to be brought into conformity with God. He says one of them is sexual immorality, and sexual immorality is this is the physical action of sex, right? And the others, we've got impurity, which is kind of uh, this, this sense of dwelling on um, dwelling on impure thoughts and kind of letting that uh, fantasy life kind of consume you. So if you said to yourself, hey, I never acted on it. I just thought about it all the time. Okay, well, this is still impurity, right? And it's uh, coming from this sense of lust. This lust is the initial reaction that you want something and you continue to kind of fuel the fire of desire for that thing. And so you see it, you want it, and lust begins. And this stuff moves you. And we get it. To a degree, we get it. And so if we can just be honest here as a church and just kind of embrace this and understand it, sex, for those of you who have never experienced that before, is not a bad thing. And it is a very motivating thing. A lot of people have done a lot of things with sex on the mind. If I can just be real with you here in this place, because there are a lot of guys who are married... And certain things happen, and they said, I want to be intimate, right? 
And they began to realize that more than flowers and chocolates, if you want to experience intimacy with your wife, they started doing the dishes. They started vacuuming the floors. They started painting walls. They did projects. They did all sorts of stuff because they said, hey, I like it when my wife and I are happy because my chances of sex go up exponentially. This is a highly motivating force, and we get it. The problem is this. Sexual immorality is not just sex, and sex is bad. Sexual immorality is when sex begins to do one of two things. One, it exists outside of God's domain, right, for how sex is meant to be utilized. In other words, if the driving force of sex leads you to a place to no longer be faithful to God and to go out and pursue sex for sex's sake, then it falls into this category. Secondarily, it can work within the realm of marriage, but if it becomes the driving factor that is greater to you than pleasing God is you want to have your desires fulfilled, then you will displace God and say, God, get off the throne of my life. Instead, I'm placing sex there. And when this happens, he's calling this. He's saying all of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, the longing for money, this is idolatry. It's the thing where you say what I want most is something other than what God wants for me. It's this longing. It's this passion. And, and, and I think it's important that we think about it and say, what are the things inside of us that need to be put to death? Are there those of you here who have had appetites and passions that have led you into sin that need to be called out and put to death? There are some of you here in this place that you have spent the vast majority of your life trying to always be the toughest person in the room. And it was important to you that you had a certain sort of reputation and you pursued that reputation. You need to put that to death. There's some of you who since your earliest days, you knew in your mind that you wanted money and somebody asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you didn't know what to tell them for a vocation, but they said, what do you want to be? And you just said, rich. I don't know what I want to be. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know I want money because money is going to solve all my problems. And then you spent the rest of your life pursuing it. Now, listen, I understand uh, we buy things with money and money is sort of kind of helpful. But in greed, what's happening is the decisions that I'm making, the moral choices that are making up who I am are be dri being driven by my passion for money. And so he's saying you need to get these things right in your heart and put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You used to walk in these ways, but you don't anymore. I want you to live differently. The second set of things he begins to tell him, he says, you need to put those to death. And these you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. So, again, you're a different person. You're not who you used to be. Someone look at your neighbor and tell him you're not who you were. And you know what? I may not yet be who God is creating me into, but I thank God I'm not who I was. I thank God that he is moving me away from that old life because I know what that was. I know that person. I know the kinds of things that drove me. 
I know the kinds of things that got inside me and motivated my action. And some of them, it didn't even seem that bad, right? I wanted people to esteem me well. And so I was very defensive and I wanted people to like me. And so I did everything I could to keep all the crazy inside. And every time you saw me, I just wanted to present you something that was amiable and fun and likable. And I wanted people to think, oh man, that Andrew, he's a good guy and he's got his act together. And I tell you what, If that's what drives your life, vulnerability becomes impossible. And if that's what drives your life, admitting that you're wrong, it just can't be done. Because in order to admit that I'm wrong, I've got to let that veneer shatter. I've got to let that stuff that I fought so hard to kind of protect fall to pieces. And guys, if I can just be honest with you, it's way better on the other side of that. Because the great desire of Jesus is not that you would kind of feed your appetite till you're full. The great desire of Jesus is that you could understand your identity in Christ and stop fighting to build one outside of him. Because when you do that, you realize I don't have to prove myself to anybody. He's already given me worth. I don't have to prove myself to anybody because he's already said, man, you've blown it. You're a sinner, but I'll forgive you. So I don't have to hide my sins. I don't have to hide my mistakes and my blemishes. For some of us, right, it's pride. Pride kind of falls in there with this stuff. We want to be the best. And what will happen if I'm not? For some of us, it is lust. For some of us, it's always about having something more. And he's saying, listen, I want to give you a new identity. I want to build up something in you that is different. And as he comes to this second point, he says, you also have to rid yourself of these things. And they all seem somewhat tied up with language. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips, and then lying. And all of these have expressions on the outside. You've been angry before, and words came out of your mouth. You've flown into a rage, and it probably wasn't motivated by your incredible love for somebody. Right? I'm just so infuriated by how much I love you. Right? It's never going to make it on a Valentine's Day card. It just won't. Literally what's happening here is he says there are going to be certain things that come up in your heart that when you begin to think about other people, you're going to say me first, you second. That's what's going on. And the idea of anger, I'm frustrated. Someone's going to pay the price. It's not going to be me, right? In malice, literally what you're doing is saying I wish bad things for that person. To have malicious intent is to desire that harm would befall someone else. In slander, we're using our words to tear down somebody else's reputation. In filthy language, he's not just talking about dropping F-bombs. He's saying literally the kinds of words that drag other people down. The kinds of words that destroy other people's lives. He's saying don't use your mouth and your language and your relationship in order to diminish others. And even when we lie, whatever your motive, there is something here that is decidedly thinking of yourself. I've never, ever met a selfless liar. The kind of person who is like, listen, there's nothing in it for me. I lie purely for the good of others. No, no, no. We lie to get ourselves out of trouble. And listen, If you're kind of in that situation, the proverbial, does this dress make me look fat situation, and you say, well, I didn't want to hurt her feelings, so I lied, I call foul. You did not want to say the truth because you were afraid she might kill you. This is self-preservation. At its heart, lying is not a selfless act. At its heart, 
All of these things that he's talking about here are the things that say me first, you second. And he's saying, you got to rid yourself of that. You got to get it out of you. You're bathed in anger, rage, malice, slander, all this stuff that's inside of you. You got to get rid of it. And some of us, we perpetuated a narrative around our lives where we feel like we are the victim. And we have looked and we've said, man, I wouldn't be this way if it wasn't for my father, for my mother. I wouldn't be this way if my brother didn't treat me like that. You know, I've been wronged and we hold this thing in us and we feel like we deserve it. I deserve to be angry. I deserve to be enraged. I deserve to be bitter. And listen, I don't know your story and you don't know mine. I've been through some stuff. You may have been through more. That's fine. But here's where I do want to challenge you is do you think that holding on to that anger, that bitterness, that rage, do you think that that hurts them? Who does it hurt? It wounds you. For most of us, the reason we don't move on with our lives, the reason that we find intimacy difficult, the reason that we find being vulnerable and loving other people and following Jesus on mission, the stuff that makes that really hard is this kind of stuff clogging up the works. The stuff that says, I've been hurt before and it's difficult for me to move on. The stuff that says, you know what? I can't forgive that, not after all that they've done to me. And the reality is, in the person of Jesus Christ, there is no sin that can't be forgiven. And if it's true for you, If it's true that Jesus can forgive you, then could it be possible that following Jesus, you could extend forgiveness to someone else? That you could be the one that could let the generational bickering end. For some of you, you had to make choices in your family. You had to pick sides. Am I going to side with mom or dad on this one? For some of you, you have stopped talking to siblings. I've met people before who hadn't spoken to their sister or their brother in 15, 20 years because of a disagreement. And I would say it's time to put that stuff to rest. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to get rid of that junk. It's time to let go of unforgiveness, to let go of bitterness, rage, slander, malice, all the stuff that says, I didn't get a fair shake, and I'm looking out for number one because if I don't do it, who will? And instead turns my heart and realizes that legitimately I'm called to two things as a Christian. That I would love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. That I would love my neighbor as myself. This is it, guys. The whole Christian life wrapped up in these two principles. And so Ephesians 4.21, another letter written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. And he begins to speak of these exact same things. And he tells them, don't be like that. Instead, let me show you a better way. Another parallel passage. So in Ephesians 4, he says, when you heard about Christ, were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. In other words, your before Jesus days. And you were told about those days, put off your old self. Don't act like that anymore, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds, in the way that you think, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, we're being invited to put off what we used to be and begin to act and think like God. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood in the same way he told them in in Colossians 3. Don't lie. He says, you here in Ephesus, put off falsehood and instead speak truthfully to your neighbors. Why? For we are all members of one body. Instead of just trying to get for yourself, understand that we're a family together. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, he's saying in your anger, you are providing the devil room to be at work in your life. Get rid of it. He speaks to stealing. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. And I love that he doesn't end there, right? 
He doesn't just say, are you stealing? Stop it. Because we'd all get that. Like, this makes sense. When we go this far in this verse, hey, are you stealing? Knock it off. We're like, oh, yeah, okay. Are you lying? Don't do it anymore. Oh, okay. Have you been killing people? You need to not kill anyone. And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I can't argue with any of that. But it's interesting. He doesn't just say, don't steal. He actually recognizes the relational repercussions. Because in stealing, we look and say, you have something. I want something. I should take what you have so I can have it, even if that means you don't. Right? This is a totally me-centered system. And instead, what he begins to say is, I want to change your whole thinking around this thing. And anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Go get a job. Why? So you can take care of yourself? This sounds like a welfare plan. In other words, if you've been having, you've been taking advantage of other people, you need to go get a job and stop stealing from people. No, 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 no. This isn't the point. He says you have to work doing something useful with your own hands. Why? That they may have something to share with those in need. I love this mentality. He says you were stealing. Now I want you to go to work so that you can give things away to people who are in need. You knew what it was to be in need. And when you were in need, you stole. Stop it. That's you centered. Go work and give to the needy. It's other centered. Then he comes back to speech. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And this is really important because we look at filthy language and we're like, well, just don't swear. And so Christians get really good at swearing without swearing. You know what I'm saying? We've got our Christian little swear words and we're like, oh, I didn't say it. You shut the front door. You know, it's like, oh, stop it. You know, if we couldn't say dang, I remember when I was a kid getting in trouble for dang, I would say darn. Couldn't say dang it. Dang it would get you beat. So I'd say darn it. What are we doing? What are we doing? The same meaning, the same soul, the same intent. Every Christian who says, well, at least I don't say the F word, the S word, the H word, the A word, or the D word, my talk is fine. Listen, and I want to be real clear on this. Having the kind of language that God is inviting, into, inviting you into has way less to do with the vocabulary that you choose and way more to do with the intent of your heart in speaking. What he's after here is he's saying, are you using your words to build others up? Are you thinking to yourself, when I speak, I want to enrich the lives of others? Because this is what's going on. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You could have somebody who has the sweetest, nicest vocabulary in the word, in the world, never said a single bad thing to anybody, and you could look at them and say, you know what? Your words just aren't useful. They're not helpful. Right? And so if we're patting ourselves on the back and we're just saying, hey, good job. You don't swear. Good job. You overcame cussing. And for some of us, we cuss too much, and you need to knock that junk off. I'm not saying anything about it. But I am saying to simply eliminate cursing, but not to elevate the value of your words in building up the lives of others, is to misunderstand the narrative of Christ. It is not about legalism. It is not about simply curbing your negative behavior. It is about transforming the soul to begin to care for the life of others. This leads us to the last point. Your new life brings you into a new family. If you belong to Jesus, your old loyalties must be replaced with a new commitment to Christ and his kingdom. This means that I can't have the same loyalties that I had before. 
To put it simply, if there are those in the world that you do not prefer for whatever reason, I want you to park that outside. In this culture in 2020 in America, it's not popular to be racist. I don't know if it was ever super popular, but today everybody's kind of a little bit feeling like, oh, you know, like don't put that label on me. But if we could be honest, all of us are racially motivated. All of us have things that get into our head that build up in our nationality, and some of it is because of history. Some of it is because of your personal experience. And there are things that have happened that have made relationship between races, between cultures, between ages remarkably challenging. And so as we look at it and you begin to look, most of us will spend time with people who we esteem to be more like ourselves, either in our thinking, in our bearing, or even in our appearance. And the church is not immune. And so what he's saying is, hey, listen, I want you to understand that your new loyalty is to Christ. I want you to understand that this new identity is built up nowhere else than in him. And if they're older than you or younger than you, God has still called you into family. And if their skin is your shade or darker or lighter, he has still called you into their family. And no matter if they speak your language or some other language, they're still a part of your family. And we need to figure out how to do this better. This is the stuff he's talking about. Look, he says, get rid of the old stuff. And in this new life, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. This is so significant to that culture, and we need to hear it with fresh ears today. Because what's going on is that there were some people who felt like they were utterly persecuted, and this was the Jews. And they said, don't worry, hang tough, God will vindicate us. We are his favorite son, his chosen people. And we know this because we have the Old Testament law and we have been circumcised. And though, so there were some that were becoming Christians that were Jews. And they said, that's great that you're a Christian like I am. Now all you have to do is change your eating habits and get circumcised. Because if you don't, you're not as righteous as we are. And they say, hey, listen. Hey, listen. It's not about whether you are a Jew or not. That's not going to save you. It's not about whether or not you're circumcised or not. That won't save you. And in fact, let's even bring in the barbarians, which everyone has agreed is an unfavorable people. It doesn't matter where you're from, what your identity is. If you are part of Jesus, you are part of me. I don't care about your legal status. If you're a slave or free, it makes no difference to me. You are my brother. You are my sister. Why? Christ is all and is in all. This is the language. It changes my identity and then it changes the way I engage with others. It shapes the way I think about who I am and who you are. And so today as we wrap this up, I want to do two things. One, we're going to take communion together. And this is really important, this thing of us having this identity together. It is pictured well in communion. In communion, we see the picture that Jesus' body broken, his blood poured out, is what has purchased salvation for us. And each and every one of us, every last one of us who has experienced salvation has experienced it in no other way than the grace of God poured out through Jesus. And secondarily, I want us to understand that in this 
freedom that God has given us, he still invites us to repent and turn away from sin. And to come back to where we started, there are some Christians who are very content to continue on in their sin. And guys, this shouldn't be us. If we're going to be the ones who say we're following Jesus, let's, let's follow Jesus. Whatever sin it is you're wrestling with, I, it's not about judgment. It's not about us looking down on you. It's just about you taking an honest inventory of your heart and saying, man, this lives inside me. And I don't want it to anymore. And some of you mean, that means you got to get rid of some videos at home. Some of you means you probably should get rid of your laptop or your phone. Some of you means you need to clear out the drug cabinet. Some of you means you need to pour out some bottles. Some of you, it means you need to you need to cut off some relationships. You need to look at your life and honestly say, God, is there anything that's keeping me from you? Is there anything that's out of sync? And if it is, listen, I don't think I got a name that I think you know already. I want you to give it to the Lord. And it works like this. Teshuva repentance, biblical repentance, has three parts to it. Number one, I confess it. In other words, I'm owning this is wrong. God, I was wrong to use. Second, it acknowledges I've sinned against God. God, I realize I did this against you, and I'm sorry. And thirdly, there's this part where I am committing, saying, I'm going to try not to do this again. Those are the three parts of repentance. I own it. It's wrong. I'm sorry for it, and I'm going to strive not to do it again. This is what it means to repent before God. The Bible says that when we do this, He hears us, He cleanses us, He washes us clean. So today, that's the opportunity that I want to give you. It's the chance to realign your life with Christ, to recognize the difference between the E minor that is true and the chords that you have made up for yourself. Let's get back on board with Jesus. Will you stand with me? Just symbolically, if you would, raise your hands just like this that we're offering something to Jesus. We're handing him over our lives and we're putting to death our sin. I want you to picture that you're holding whatever it is that's keeping you from God. Dear Jesus, we long that our lives would be aligned with you. We understand that sin separates us. God, that we can't have good relationship with you and still hold on to sin any more than someone can move on in their marriage and do well while they're keeping picture of their old girlfriend in their back pocket that's not going to be who we are and so god we're giving up that old life we're giving up those old desires and passions the things that drove us before they don't drive us anymore you do the sins that were so much a part of our identity whether it was alcohol whether it was drugs whether it was the love of others or seeking out relationships god whatever it is that i've substituted for you I want to lay before you now, whether it's my own victimization, anger, bitterness, rage. God, I lay it down. I ask God that you would change my life, that you would transform me. God, I confess my sin before you, that I have done what is wrong. I ask that you would forgive it. And God, by your grace and by your power, I commit that I'm going to strive not to do it anymore. That, God, if there's something that's keeping me from you, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to put it to death. That, God, if there's something keeping me from you, that I'm going to make it right, even in this moment. I'm going to hand it over to you, and I'm not going to leave here clinging to that, saying, no, God, you can't have this. Instead, I'm saying, God, take it all. Take everything. I want you and nothing else. Jesus, you're all I want, and you're all I need. So, Jesus, I pray that you'd see us even symbolically, hands raised, offering this up to you. And I pray that you would meet us in this space bring restoration and freedom and cleansing and healing.